this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is sponsored by Book Riot's Read Harder Journal, created by us. This smartly designed, if we do say so ourselves, reading log consists of entry pages to record stats, your impressions of a book, and reviews of every book you read this year. Evenly interspersed among those entry pages are 12 challenges that are inspired by Book Riot's annual Read Harder initiative. It's not connected to any particular year, though. To encourage readers to pick up passed over books, try out new genres, and choose titles from a wider range of voices and perspectives. Indulge your inner book nerd, read a book about books, get a new perspective on current events by reading a book written by an immigrant, find a hidden gem by reading a book published by an independent press, and so much more. Every challenge includes an inspiring quotation, an explanation of why the challenge will prove to be rewarding, and five book recommendations from us at Book Riot that help you fulfill the challenge. Get your copy at bookriot.com slash readharderjournal. That's bookriot.com slash readharderjournal. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 301, we're recording on Thursday, February 21st, 2019. Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Chinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. I feel like we were just here. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it, when you do a Monday show, like suddenly like the week is three days is what it comes out <laughs> There's, to be. It was like, did anything happen in the last three days? I don't know. Yeah, a little but, bit. We we had to flesh out the... Well, we didn't have like the top line breaking news like we sometimes do, especially last week. Um, yeah, so it's been we a relatively cut, quiet news week. Yeah, we get to talk about some uh, deeper cuts, but like not as timely kind of stuff, which I think is actually kind of cool. Um, before we get to, to sponsors and follow-ups and everything else, a reminder, if you go to bookriot.com slash businessfingers, you can get yourself some Book Riot Podcast 300 episode, 300 episode commemorative swag, basically Business Fingers, uh, and then show title in parentheses under it on a variety of, of things, mugs, stickers, t-shirts, other things. You said that people were buying stuff. Can you tell, is there something that's leading? What's the most popular thing? The, you um, the baseball t-shirt is very is popular. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Baseball yeah. t-shirt. And the stickers. I think we mentioned last week we both got laptop stickers. Yep. Um, or stickers you can put on anything. Mine lives on my laptop. But the baseball t-shirt does seem to be popular. Is a baseball t-shirt meaningfully different from a t-shirt? I don't so know, the, ba- the baseball tees are the ones where like the center, the torso is white and oh. then the sleeves, it's three quarter length sleeves okay, and they're okay, black. Okay, yes. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So yes, I actually know. They, yes, is. it is meaningfully different. <laughs> so go, uh, <laughs> go find that if you want, there'll be a link in the show notes. The, the direct link is bookriot.com slash business fingers, which I'm saying again, only because it delights me that there is a URL. <laughs> It was, a, <laughs> it was a fun redirect to set up. Yes, that's a fun redirect. Okay, uh, tell me about our first sponsor. <laughs> our first sponsor this week is The Devil's Daughter. It's by Lisa Klepus. The Ravenels Meet the Wallflowers. These are two classic romance series that they cross over in this latest novel from Lisa Klepus, this time featuring Sebastian, Lord St. Vincent's fiery daughter. Trope Watch, Enemies to Lovers. Mm. 
Phoebe knows that West Ravenel is a mean, rotten bully when he made her late husband's life a misery back in boarding school. When she meets a dashing and charming stranger at a family wedding, she is shocked to discover it's the man she swore to hate. West Ravenel knows that he's no angel, but he doesn't believe in apologies or excuses. Will a chance with the passionate and beautiful Phoebe change that? I love this thing that happens in romance series where an author will have, you know, a whole series about one family or one friend group or whatever it is, and then a whole nother series about another family or friend group, but they exist in the same universe. It's kind of like the Marvel universe situation that happens Mm. or, you know, comics universes. And sometimes people from the two worlds cross over. Or, or the uh, the two families or storylines. And that's what's happening here. February, as we know, a good month to be reading about love. All months are good to be reading about love, honestly, <laughs> Jeff. Uh, so if that sounds good to you, especially if you're a Lisa Kleypas fan and you want to see the crossover between these two, it might also be a fun entree into discovering these two uh, classic romance series. So pick up The Devil's Daughter by Lisa Kleypas. It is out wherever books are sold, or you can click a link in the show notes. Okay, let's do some follow-up. I asked, um, I think it was two episodes ago, we didn't get to it last week, about uh, puck listening. Puck, pucks and audiobooks um, and assorted activities. Got some good feedback. Several people said they do indeed use their puck to listen to audiobooks around the house. And they're in the kitchen, they're in the living room. Um, they can just say, hey, Puck, uh, play whatever audiobook on Audible. Um, this is an Amazon Puck we're talking about. <laughs> and it'll pick up. And apparently it syncs pretty well from the, if you're using an app on your iPhone or listening on your computer or somewhere else. So you can just seamlessly go between it'll sync automatically, which seems interesting. The, the downside, I, I think we talked about a little bit with, with the puck is the user interface, discoverability, search, like finding the right thing, knowing where you are in the audiobook, like scrubbing chapters, everything else becomes very difficult. But people are doing it and they say, you know, it's it makes it awfully nice, especially if you're listening to audiobooks with other people. Um, not something I've done a whole lot, though my kids and I have been listening to some audiobooks together in the morning and in the evening, like as we're having dinner, or as we're cleaning up, or we just need some downtime, which I usually just um, throw from my phone into a, a puck connected mm-hmm. to a speaker kind of a situation. It would be nice to say, hey, puck, you know, pick up uh, Winnie the Pooh where we left off or whatever, um, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, and of course, as, as sometimes happens, we didn't mention, even though we know, that for accessibility purposes, it's, it's a complete game changer. I had a couple oh, of people yeah. write to talk about um, elderly relatives or friends that even navigating with, with vision problems that would even make navigating the UI on an iPhone or iPad or computer difficult, mm-hmm. but they can still talk and they can still hear. And so, you know, they can find audiobooks using their puck and get them to turn on and move around and navigate that way where the lack of a UI there is a feature, not a bug. Really because cool they don't have to navigate it. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure how sophisticated these things are yet. I still don't quite understand the purchasing situation. Um, if you talk into your puck, you know, buy... And we'll get, we had a news story this week. The Phantom Tollbooth is going to be made in an audiobook for the first time. Um, you know, play the Phantom Tollbooth. Is it going to buy it for you? Is it going to read a sample? And then, like, do you have to voice authorize it? That's something I, you know, I think I'm trying to figure out um, myself. But there is a future world in which this is a thing that many of us will use as we get older um, and be very happy that exists. So as always, 
it's helped to think about accessibility just because something's not great for me right now doesn't mean it's not a great for other people right now and B won't be good for me at some point uh, in my own future. So that's my follow up about pucks and audio. I have a content adjacent puck story that I think that you'll, um, since we've accidentally activated people's pucks on the show and that's why we Mm -hmm. talk about pucks now instead of saying the names uh, at the yoga studio where I teach, one of the teachers has activated, has turned on the voice activated puck for her Mm. Amazon music account, her prime music account that she uses um, when she's teaching. And so her phone was turned on and she was playing music as she was teaching class. And, you know, in yoga, we talk about the breath a lot. And so she would say, you know, inhale, do this thing, exhale, do this other thing. But her phone perceived exhale to be similar enough to the name of Amazon's to the puck um, that uh, (laughs) the puck turned on in the middle of class going like, how can I help you? And she spent the (laughs) remainder of the hour going breathe out. (laughs) (laughs) which just you know modern life problems that's funny (laughs) my kids um i only can plug in our puck because they'll get a little uh uh unruly with it Mm. and talk over each other and it's a very you know i can just say my choice right when your choice is playing and blah 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 Uh. but one thing i did really appreciate is that they would they would they would talk to it as they would talk to a person and say, hey, mm-hmm. Puck, could you please play blah, 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 <laughs> which is great. But it did it actually confused matters a little bit because they don't enunciate that well. The Puck doesn't understand, but like it was... The Puck so, wants imperatives. Yeah, the, the, the Puck would like as few words as possible, so you don't need, you know, uh, honorifics like uh, hello, uh, Miss Puck or anything like that. You just need <laughs> to say, Puck, play... Um, you know, uh, good afternoon what, what it, to you. Yeah, they don't. They're not. They don't need to hear that. Uh, wolves so by Selena Gomez. Just say play wolves by Selena Gomez. Not could you puck? Could you please play wolves by Selena Gomez? <laughs> anyway, um, though I do. I mean, I also don't. I have to say, I, I did. I did encourage them to like use please at the end, just because I don't want them in the habit of like talking. I don't know. I was, it's strange. It's, it's a strange phenomenon. To I'm be sure. sitting here wondering if maybe future versions of the puck or more advanced AI will respond to manners. <laughs> that would be nice. I think they're probably if my kids enunciated a little better and spoke more slowly, it wouldn't get in the way. I can only mm. imagine that the engineers have accounted for a variety of natural language expressions mm-hmm. like that. Um, but more words coming out of my kids for the pucks to understand of any kind just didn't help the situation. But, um, it's one of those things like, well, I don't want them just to be like barking orders at pucks because <laughs> it feels, and then it talks back to you. Like it says playing blah, 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 blah. feels like you can just order something around. Yeah. You don't order yeah. things around, even if it's pucks. Um, right. so anyway, even just to get in the habit. So most of the things you talked about are not pucks. <laughs> well, that concludes the weekend pucks. <laughs> I feel like I've said that word. Maybe I'm just like so self-conscious of it. It's starting I'm to lose to, meaning. Yeah. It's like, uh, my name, my name is so weird. My hands are, uh, my so, hands big. are so big. <laughs> um, anyway, so there we go. There's follow up on to, I was uh, saying to Rebecca before we started recording, um, this is one of those stories when I came across. I think I had heard about Betty Ballantyne before, uh, but paperback pioneer Betty Ballantyne died this week at the age of 99. Whew. And as I was reading the obit, um, this is an AP, there'll be a link in the show notes. I was like, what a phenomenal story. I really wish I had been on my horse to do this for an annotated, maybe got her on the phone. I mean, I don't know what kind of health she was in, if she's available for this sort of thing, but 
I highly recommend for those of you who like publishing history at all to read the full obit. We'll hit a little of the high points here, but she and her partner, um, in 1939, when Betty Ballantyne was just 20, she met her husband, who is an American, studying at the London School of Economics. She's a Brit herself. And they used a $500 wedding gift from her father to start importing penguin paperbacks from England to sell in the U.S. and founded two imprints that endure to this day, Bantam Books and Ballantyne Books. You probably could go see them you know, on a bookstore, wherever you can find. Um, and... Also, another thing that she did, or she and her and her, her fella did, were to popularize by making more affordable versions of oh, a little book called The Hobbit. <laughs> a little bit of you Fahrenheit four fifty one. Also uh, acquired Valentine uh, acquired through the editor Stanley Kaufman a little book called Fahrenheit four fifty one. They sold their company in the late sixties to Penguin Random House. But they worked on amazing titles. Basically, a genre, mid-century genre in paperback has a lot to do with the Ballantines and Betty Ballantine herself. So an end of an era, one of those things in the world where you think of a book world that doesn't have paperbacks, uh, which is kind of wild. There, there were paperbacks you know, going all the way back. But until the 50s and 60s, there w- they were pulp because the, the paper quality was pretty bad. And it's not something that you would associate with literature or front list commercial fiction. But there's a new technology that came along and a clause in copyright law discovered by Ian Ballantyne that waived fees on books from Britain where quality paperbacks were much easier to find. Genius. So that's a that's a direct link. There, so found an angle and ran through it like a rhino um, <laughs> busting through a circus tent, and so there's there we go. So um, thank you, Betty Ballantyne. Thank you, Ian Ballantyne, and what a wonderful story. Yeah, I was noticing one of the things that stuck out to me about the obit is how much of the work that they published that became a big deal was sci-fi and fantasy, yeah. and publishing in general. I think still does not do a great job of honoring the importance and the place in literature of sci-fi and fantasy. They, uh, the Ballantines were inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which is a thing, mm. um, in 2008. And there's a quote here from an interview that she gave to a sci-fi magazine called Locus back in 2002, where she says, we really truly wanted and did publish books that mattered. And science fiction matters because it's of the mind. It predicts, it thinks, it says, look at what's happening here. If that's what's happening here and now, what's it going to look like 10 years from now, 50 years from now, or 2000 years from now? It's a form of magic, not abracadabra or wizard wizardry. It is the minds of humankind that make this magic. Um, and I, that's such a wonderful and grounding perspective about mm-hmm. one of the genres of literature that I think is on the receiving end of a lot of snobbery. And it's very cool to know that um, that was a perspective of one of really the pioneers of modern publishing. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So anyway, read the, read the, read the full obit if it's interesting to you. Um, amazing story. You know, that's, you could do, a, you could do worse than to look at the imprints at Penguin or Random House or, uh, you know, SNS or Macmillan or whoever and read an, uh, article about the person who that imprint is named mm, after because mm-hmm. a lot of the time it means they did something revolutionary evolutionary innovative something there's a reason they that name on the imprint matters um you know you could knopf borzoi there's a whole bunch of different ones bloomsbury 
Um, if the imprint name doesn't matter now, which it kind of doesn't in a lot of times, I think it's interesting to look at the history of publishing through like, if you've got an imprint named after you that exists 60 years later, what did you do that, you know, your, your angle became a part of publishing the publishing industry as we know it today. So, okay. So there's that. Where do we want to go next? Speaking of the Hobbit, I guess is a yeah. good way to get to this as well. Do you want to take this one or want me to take this one? Yeah, this is a fun one in technology. I'll take this one. And um, we've had several stories over the last couple of years about various, you know, bots and AI things, either writing books or analyzing books and seeing what they can turn out that uh, seems like it. But most recently, um, there's AI open source material that has taken uh, Lord of the Rings and speeches by John F. Kennedy and a bunch of other things and given them creative uh, writing assignments. And most recently, there's um, an AI that was developed that was given a, su a simple prompt for a scenario from Lord of the Rings. And the AI came up with what turns out to be a very readable vignette. You can click on, this is a piece from Sci-Fi Wire, but you can click on a link in this piece if you want to actually read the piece, the, read the story itself. It's mm -hmm. written in the same style as Tolkien. There are a couple of uh, like sort of logical like logical loopholes in it. It doesn't yeah. make 100% sense, um, that, but it might take a couple passes before you would notice that anything was a little bit off. And in fact, it's such a good imitation of the way that a human would write. Basically, it's fan fiction. It's like Lord yeah, of the Rings right. fan fiction. It's such a good imitation of the way that a human would do it that um, the developers are a little bit scared of the AI's mm -hmm. power now. <laughs> Yeah, the kind I mean the the passage they gave is not obviously written by a robot. I guess it's not good. Yeah. I wouldn't call it good, but it's not. You not you don't feel like you're reading machine text. There's a couple of things that you would. It feels a little bit like it's something you would write in high school, like fan fiction mm -hmm. from high school, because yeah. it's not fully developed. But it's sort of a tip of the iceberg situation. Like as these things get better, this is this is a stone throw away from being able to fool me. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There are, I was thinking about this as compared to those Twitter threads where someone will be like, you know, I fed um, mm -hmm. 50 cookbooks worth of recipes into AI and here's the thing that it generated as its original work. And those always have some sort of strange idiosyncrasies and there will be inevitably like funny combinations of words. But this, it's a little bit clunky. You're right. It's not like the most sophisticated writing, but it doesn't have any of those things that I think we're coming to think of as hallmarks of uh, sort of the weaknesses of AI when it comes to creative work. It's just interesting to see this evolution. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely the kind of thing that could keep you up at night, especially if you work <laughs> in books and stories. Like, Maybe don't think about it too You know, much. in 20 years, are we getting, you know, sequels to Lord of the Rings written by computers? Uh, it certainly seems possible that, you know, that you would read and enjoy. I don't know what that means. Um it's one of those situations where maybe it could be that the last 10% that really makes it feel like you're reading a, a I don't know what we'd call now a real book by a real person. Mm. Maybe that last 10% is really hard. Maybe because so much of this is combinatorial, it will always feel decent, but derivative um, because it's, you know, it's going on established I hear especially Tolkien's words. Um, but it definitely gets you wondering about some of this stuff, um, 
where does copyright come into play? Like I have mm-hmm. no idea. Yeah, like if the author question. is a, if the author is an AI and it never <laughs> dies, then who what, owns the IP? It, it never comes into the public domain. Like there's and that's just one. That's just one that comes to the top of my head about how this stuff could go weird. But it uh, look at it, look at it, and see what you think. I think you'll agree with us that it feels like you know if you were wanting to start writing science fiction and you were trying to do fan fiction for The Hobbit, this is not embarrassing. Uh, in using those parameters, how much better, how much quickly, I don't know enough about it to even speculate. Um, but if you would have told me, here's here's a here, if you would have showed me this twelve years ago, fifteen years ago, mm. I would have been like, oh my god! <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seriously, is, right? It's happened uh, so gradually that yeah. we lose sight, I think, of how amazing this actually. Yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. I would have been like, wait, a computer just just did this, like with right, uh, if and it doesn't it have me. big issues. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's wild. I mean. It's more grammatically correct than th- most humans would write because it is grammatically correct. Um, some of the logic stuff doesn't make sense, but the, the grammar is fine and the punctuation is good, which is better than most people can do. So, <laughs> it's true. Including this guy. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not exempting myself. No shade. No shade. So anyway, so you know, don't think about it too hard. Think about it, but not too hard. When you mentioned real books, it reminded me, I think we need to mention that we are aware of the utterly banana pantsness plagiarism thing that is going on in romance land. Oh, um, yeah. Which is hashtag copy paste Chris, but we are not fully up on what's going down there. It also seems to me that that story is still developing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot. There are a lot of worms under this particular rock it seems um so maybe by the next episode there will be uh, enough information in a Mm. concise enough place that's not a jillion twitter threads (laughs) for us to discuss it Um, but if you are in romance landia and you are wondering if this is coming up today it's not coming up today except insofar for us to say we know about it and hopefully we'll get there soon there's some things i didn't know about that people do in that thread like mm. hiring people on Fiverr to write parts of your yeah. book for you. That I did not know that either. Like ghostwriters. We'll yeah. Yeah. You know, we should get to it because it also connects with the Jill Abramson story about mm. mm-hmm. her book, Merchants of Truth, which is so unfortunate of a title and a person that has a plagiarism <laughs> problem. Um, I guess that was one that was happening and we didn't know where it's going to land. I still think it's happening, but um, but let, let's let's come back to plagiarism corner. Uh, next yes. week and try to wrap we those return. two together a little bit there. So anyway, um, go read about uh, scary good Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Rings writing. Um, let's do a cool thing that's not scary at all. Um, we've talked about a uh, well-read black girl before mm-hmm. on the show, Glory Edoms. I guess you would call up. I don't even know what you call it—a a property, think, a movement, an idea. Yeah. Uh, a, Started, I think, as an online book club, and yeah. she has run at least one well-read Black girl convention since then. And there's a book. Yeah, there's it's a, book. a. Let's go with movement. I like yeah. that. Yeah. And the next phase, iteration, manifestation of the well-read Black girl is going to be a basically dozens of independent bookstores nationwide are going to be hosting well-read Black girl book clubs. Um. So you can sign up. There'll be a link in the show notes. This is from the the article we're looking at is from the American Booksellers Association. Um, so you can be included. People can find you. Um, she's going to promote uh, Glory will uh, promote it on her own social media and encourage followers to ask their local store to host. 
Um, there's going to be a workshop at Children's Institute that she's going to lead about best practices for establishing a well-read black girl book club. Um, each in September, so it starts in September, each participating well-read black girl book club will read the same title, To Be Determined, and uh, Eden will visit a number of indie bookstores and Skype into book clubs throughout the fall. So Cool. Yeah, it says, um, this is also copy from that article, Well-Read Black Girl provides a vital space for black female readers and writers to connect and grow in conversation. So you can also find um, the book club meetings, readings, and Twitter chats are hash WRBG chat. So there you go. Go check it out. It's exciting and cool to see. Yeah, it's um, winner of the 2017 Innovators Award from the Los Angeles Time Book Prize. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well-deserved, for sure. Absolutely. Um, Valentine published her book, yeah, which came out hey. in October, <laughs> which is, that's a nice uh, synergy there. So go check that out. If you go, if you're interested in going, um, it says it provides a vital space for black female readers and writers to connect and grow in conversation. Mm-hmm. So if that's interesting yeah, to if you. If there's one near you and you go, we would also love to hear about it. I um, was surprised that there's not a list here already. It says dozens have already signed up. And I was like, where's the list of people that have signed up? And I was going to tell people about it, but it's not there yet. So uh, let's see. That's cool. I don't know what to say about that, except that's cool. I it think is cool. A nationwide. So to go back to one of our ongoing, I don't know, eyebrow raised eyebrows is online book clubs Mm -hmm. right like to do like a mass online book club i'm sure some people out there have had one that they've really enjoyed i haven't seen one that looks super compelling to me this one where there's an umbrella kind of organization or connective tissue but each book club meets independently in a physical space yeah now that's interesting yeah that i I think think is interesting i think there's just a point and at least this is where i am on it now where being in the same space with other humans and having community and connection in that way um, feels essential and important. Yeah. And it's cool. To, it's really cool to have a movement that begins online and a community that forms up around it the way that Glory built a really incredible community around well-read Black Girl and that they're able to take that and sort of spin it out into like franchised book clubs yeah. um, for independent bookstores to have and to form, you know, community meeting places for readers to come together um, and discuss those things. I like that uh, sort of multimedia, but also like also like multi-space component that there yeah. it exists online. It's going to exist out in the real world at brick and mortar bookstores. It already does exist in uh, the big convention. But if you can't travel to a convention, maybe you one of these indie bookstores will be able to get near, you know, or you'll maybe it will be near you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be you know, really cool to see. And I think we we also do a good amount of eyebrow raising about like programming attempts, but usually it's like Barnes and Noble's latest programming attempt. I think this is a really smart idea and um, taking a book that has an existing community around it and then taking that out to bookstores and yep. providing them with the resources to do it. It's a, um, this is a way that publishers do partner with indie bookstores. That's pretty unique to that relationship that we don't see happening really between like publishers and Barnes and Noble or publishers and books a million. Mm-hmm. Um, and that community driven focus of indie bookstores really comes into play there too. So awesome to, I think it's really awesome to see. I hope these book clubs are just packed Me too. and that glory sells a jillion copies. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I mean, it'd be interesting what the first selection is. Um, yeah. That's that's going to be very fascinating to see. But you're right. I think that combination of real, uh, real life, it, 
physical presence, I guess, because mm-hmm. internet's real life. Physical presence, um, connection, community, local, you know, you don't have to go far from it. Um, and sort of in an independence between each book club meeting, um, but there's connective tissue that people care about, and that's how they find out about it. And then the focus of the, you know, that this is a specific, there's a specific mission here, um, which gives it a shape and specificity that something like the Barnes and Noble book club is just, it it doesn't get any more specific than we like books. Right. I don't think that's specific enough to drive mm -mm. people to really care about something like this over time. I might be wrong, but if I'm going to bet on the endurance of the Barnes and Noble book club or the Wellwood red black girl sort of network of autonomous meetings, I'm betting on the latter. That's, that's, that's what I'm betting on. So, all right. Uh, let me do another sponsor before we get too far. We have a lot. I like these little potpourri sections. I mm-hmm. do have to admit yeah, this. Yeah, these are fun. We get to get run through them. So this episode of the Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by The Lost Man by Jane Harper. Jane Harper is the New York Times bestselling author of The Dry and Force of Nature, which I have read The Dry and I really liked it. So these are mysteries, murder mysteries, especially um, but they're they're set in Australia, and they've got they're like modern westerns set in Australia. So for me, it's like I like westerns, I like mysteries, but it also has this sort of unfamiliarity of Australia. Like I don't really know. I'm a little disoriented, which is kind of fun in a mystery. It's it's, it's familiar, but it's unfamiliar as well. They call ranches stations, other things like that. Um, the sheep stations. I'll never get over that as, as meaning <laughs> that you run a sheep ranch. Anyway, she's returning for her new novel, The Lost Man, and early readers are calling it her best yet. So, two brothers meet for the first time in months in the Australian outback, and their third brother lies dead at their feet. As they grieve, suspicions rise and family secrets start to come to light. There can be only so many suspects in the remote outback. And that that last line really captures something I really liked about the dry. Like, it's sort of a... It's in the outback, so it feels like it should be more open, but it's very claustrophobic because everybody knows everyone else in these small towns, and it's not you don't get to hide in sort of the, the, the grid of Manhattan. So it, there's this very weird tension between you're out in the middle of nowhere, and yet there's like 15 people there. And so everyone's a suspect, and it feels like anything is possible. So I really like the dry. I've had Force of Nature on my list for a long time um, and looking forward to The Lost Man. So that's The Lost Man by Jane Harper. Go check it out today. All right. Um, let's do a little audiobook news. Mm-hmm. So I, I mentioned before that um, I saw a news story come through, or, or Jess, um, who works with us, was kind of exclaiming, surprised, <laughs> that the Phantom Toll Booth hadn't been out in audio yet. And this connects with this story, which is HMH Audio is going to start producing its own audiobooks, which at first blush sounds wild to say. Like, wait, they're not producing it already but the audiobook space has been so interesting because there still isn't for a long time have been these middlemen kind of product audiobook production companies that will license properties you know books basically from publishers and produce the audio and distribute the audio to the libraries and audible and their own platforms and other places and then the publisher gets a cut Whereas over time, a lot of the publishers have moved the production in-house, so they keep more of the revenue chain, they control performance, they control the quality of the narration, you know, book cover, uh, the, the covers of the book, everything else. But I think 
this is the last of the big five-ish. I guess HMH yes. is not big five, right? They're like the fifth or something. They're like the sixth of five or something like that. I can't remember <laughs> the, how this works five. exactly. Um, but they're, they're getting their own group under, uh, I guess, they're, they're getting them all put together so they can produce their own audiobooks. And then connected to that, the Phantom Tollbooth, there was no audiobook version. And a new one, uh, one's going to be um, released in conjunction with the movie, which is coming out at some point soon, but uh, narrated by Rain Wilson, which then got my question that we've had before is like how much do celebrity narrators get paid for these things good question which we've always wanted to know i think we first raised that when was it rosario dawson was um announced as the narrator of andy weir's second book which i cannot remember the title of right now the one after the martian oh boy yes just let's go with the one after the martian yeah the one after the martian and we were like how much did she get paid and how does this thing work like a penguin classics audiobook that kate winslet narrates there's a bunch like the um audible has done this thing where they've got um they got what's her name um oh come on jeff she's in gone girl oh come on uh rosamund pike oh yes um to narrate some jane austen you know like they they've also they've also done that um i'm not sure so Things are still, even as audio, digital audio has taken off and has been the success story, I will say, of digital books. I'm throwing ebooks out for just a minute. I think in a lot of ways, audiobooks have benefited the most from the digital revolution. There's still a lot of consolidation and catching up that publishers mm-hmm. have to do, which is surprising that we're like five or six years really until this really taking off. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about how the this re- really represents a publisher making a deeper commitment to audio mm. content in that if you have it in you know if you have it in house you're you want to have more control of it you believe this is a long lasting thing that's worth investing time and resources and staff and you know studio space as it says here um that HMH audio is going to operate out of a newly built studio inside the HMH New York City office they're planning to publish about 75 titles annually um i went back and looked and a couple of the recent books that I've read from HMH were put out on audio, but by Brilliance Audio, yeah. which is one of those big sort of third-party audio production companies. Um, but it's interesting. I think that 75 titles is an interesting number. Um, seems low relative mm-hmm. to the number of new books that Houghton Mifflin Harcourt will put out every year. So I would guess that many of the ones that like Brilliance is doing will still go to Brilliance. It seems that it's likely that that relationship will continue. Um, uh, there's no indication of that in this piece. I'm just sort of guessing here. Right. But I think you're right. It's interesting also to think about like what would have happened if ebooks as they had been developed had been developed by these third-party companies? Would Mm. we have been seeing the same thing at this juncture? Or at some point, would publishers have said, actually, we need to take that back in-house based on how they're doing? Or we think this is a long enough running game that we're going to take it all in-house and take control of it. Um, So cool to see HMH doing this. And I think it's wise and probably a little overdue um, exactly because audiobooks have taken off in such a big way. um, And it does look like that's here to stay. Like the right. better, the better our technology gets, the better and more accessible and more popular I think audio content like this is going to be. Um, and it's nice to see publishers following that trend. Um, and kind of like a, fr- a breath of fresh air sometimes too, when um, publishers can be really slow to do things mm. with tech or eBooks have been this like hand wringing angst thing. And it's so fascinating to me that audiobooks are like a completely different mode of reading. And we don't have that angst about them in publishing, or I don't see it at least. Like there was, a, yeah. there was so much eBooks are going to kill the industry stuff. Um, when eBooks, 
ebooks were on the rise, you know, before all of the shenanigans with ebook pricing and collusion and all, all the things. Um, but I haven't seen any, like, is, is anyone worried that audiobooks are going to kill print books or erode um, some other, you know, relationship that publishers have with their customers? I hope that they're not. Um, I haven't seen it, but I think it's really fascinating that this is ultimately just digitally distributed content rather than content that's printed into books, uh, you know, paper books. And no one seems worried about the audio versions where there was just so much worry about what ebooks would do. Yeah, it's true. I mean, part of it is, as we talked about a few weeks ago when we were sort of um, jocularly joking about books on tape in the old days, you know, you get the, <laughs> yeah. the 60 DVD collection of the stand or whatever that you had to get one of those 100 disc folders to hold on to. <laughs> I think there's some element that people don't perceive audiobooks as competing with print, um, which from my own experience, I don't think is true. I, well, I guess it depends on how you mean competing or competing for time, competing for dollars, competing for attention. Um, whereas eBooks felt like they could wipe out print books because they directly compete with print because they are just text in a different format that you read on a screen rather than a piece of paper. Whereas audiobooks, because they were, I don't know that, I don't know, looked down upon as the right thing, but really seemed like a niche product, right, coming into the digital revolution, that it's been allowed to grow without the sort of, it's not competing directly with print, so we don't need to worry about it. But I guess from my own dollars point of view, I probably spend more actual dollars on audiobooks than print or ebooks now. Mm. I, I guess. I, I I could probably break it down. Um so and does that matter? Does that it doesn't seem to matter. Some of it is that Audible has had so much of the audiobook retail business, especially as it comes to digital, and they've been protected of, of those prices, which we've talked about before on the show, that audiobook prices have not been subject over time to the kinds of, I don't know, bargain basement things that Amazon was doing earlier, which they're not doing now, and I don't really want to get started on ebook prices, but it's always there <laughs> below the surface. Just scratch it, it could come out. Um <laughs> It hasn't, you know, it didn't it's not really even the, all the way below the surface. No, I wouldn't even. It's it's uh, it's just a different part of the surface. It's over there. Uh, don't 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 turn the map over because it's right there. Um, but the, all of those things that you're right, audiobooks have sort of skated by. And at what point will, you know, are we frog boiling? Is the is the uh, is the publishing industry frog boiling itself about audiobooks? Oh, interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And do they are they cool with this the way these things are going? Are they not cool? Do they have the price protection? You know, all the things we say about um, protecting Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores all still apply with dollars going to digital audiobooks. Um, So I'm not sure. I'd I'd be interested to hear if there are little birdies out there that work in publishing that have thought and heard discussions or have had discussions about why aren't we throwing our hands in the air like we did about eBooks? because these numbers are still growing yeah, it, double digits a year and, and higher. So uh, it's fascinating to think about. The difference between the response to ebooks and audiobooks is so significant that it feels to me almost like there must be some really obvious reason that we just don't know about that everyone seems okay about. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess you would argue uh, that you could argue that it's expanding the market for book dollars rather than displacing it. 
Mm, I wonder new, if that's true. Is it new, new people coming to audiobooks rather than yeah. just converting their book buying dollars from print into audio? It's a good question. I don't yeah. know. It is. Cons- I think over the last couple of years, it's been the only format to show consistent growth. Yeah, definitely. Definitely is. Um, so I guess we did a little more of that than we'd like. Let's do one. Well, no, let's do these. These are two related. And then we'll do our last sponsor and a couple of potpourri things at the end. Let's talk about book collecting for a minute. Um, I think I've told you before, I once won a prize for book collecting in college, so it's a near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. Um, The Honey and Wax Book Collecting Prize, which I think we talked about when it first was announced, I think two years ago. Oh, wow. I don't remember, but I I believe you. Anyway, Honey and Wax is a um, antiquarian, uh, rare and antiquarian book, uh, you know, it's a shop. Um, And... It's run by a couple of women, and the Honey and Wax Book Collecting Prize is specifically targeted to um, women, book co- female book collectors under the age of 30. Oh. Which is really interesting, because even mm-hmm. in my dalliances in the world of book collecting, historically, has been the purview <laughs> of old dudes with money, mm-hmm. for reasons that I don't think need explanation why, nope. why that might be. Um, but this is really to spur interest, encourage interest, and recognize that there are other people out there doing book collecting. Um, the prize rewards creativity, coherence, and bibliographic rigor. So a collection may include books, manuscripts, and ephemera. It may be organized by theme, author, illustrator, printing technique, binding style, or other clearly articulated principle. Collections will not be judged on their size or their market value, but on their originality and their success in illuminating their chosen subject. Oh, man, I hope somebody has an amazing romance yes. collection. Or just whatever, just whatever. Um, many, the, the, the 2019 prize sponsors are Biblio, the Rosenbach, and Swan Galleries. I want to shout them out. There's a link in the show notes. I, I thought this was cool, but I also thought there's a non-zero chance that someone out there might want to enter, enter yes, this that listens that to would, this. That's what I was thinking as well. Plenty of people aged 30 and under are mm-hmm. in this Book Riot community. And like if any <laughs> if anybody doing a book podcast right now has a shot at sending some listeners into a book collecting <laughs> think, contest, right? I think it's us. If yeah. you enter, if you would like send us a photo of or your, whatever. Yes. your entries or whatever, um, your collection, I would like to hear about your bibliographic rigor. Um, mm-hmm. That is a phrase that I'm very delighted by. Uh, both <laughs> I'm just of us gonna, very much, very much like that. I'm going to see bibliographic rigor. I know. I'm going to just repeat it quietly to myself in moments of stress just uh, bibliographic rigor it's lovely right, now before and, everyone gets too excited let me just say this it's to us us i should say women book collectors in the us 30 or younger mm-hmm. and the prize is a thousand bucks okay you don't have to be in, enrolled in a degree program you don't need a sponsor you you know just uh, if you're if you're mm-hmm. out there doing bibliographic rigor on your own you're eligible for this Yes, they note that um, historically a collector must have had three things, resources, education, and freedom, and that only mm. a few women have had all three. That's right. But times are changing. Indeed, they are. Um, and Honey and Wax wants to support that. I really, really hope that someone listening will enter and will share their entries with us. Or I don't know, maybe you want to make a slide deck of your entry, like the people who went yes. to Indigo and sent us the slide deck, which was a delightful. PowerPoint, I, anything. Please. We'd love to see. Please. And um, I just need a moment, Jeff. Honey and Wax's slogan is mm. use books as bees use flowers. I like so a good analogy. 
been really nice working with you for seven and a half years, <laughs> but I'm going to go offer my services to Honey and Wax booksellers. <laughs> it's a great book. I mean, one of the women who runs it, Rebecca Romney, um, she wrote a really good book that I'm looking at my shelf right now called Printer's Error. And each chapter is about an unusual, interesting story from the history of book publishing. Which, oh, fascinating. I mean, I, you may not know me, but that's something I like to read about. <laughs> In just case you're wondering, that's something. Please I do enter like. this, um, please, listeners. Um, related to this, sort of, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, I should say, from a young woman, you know, kind of making a book collection out of passion rather than resource, I should say. An interesting story in the Seattle Review of Books about Ricky Jay, who's a magician who specializes in close-up magic, which is you know, card tricks on the street yep. kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But he is also apparently, and I didn't know this, a great and near legendary, if not legendary, collector of books and other ephemera about the magical arts, which is just so incredible, Um, has written about, you know, different people from the world of the magical arts and magic of different kinds. Um, And he's been, he's a character actor as well. But I don't know what else to say about this. I loved this piece about him um, and about his interests and the way he's used his own collection to further his own practice of magic, mm-hmm. you know, basically it's, it's a real resource where he looks at these things and gets ideas and then becomes a source of inspiration. I guess kind of like the, the, the metaphor of using a bee, use books as a bee, use flowers, you use it to make the thing he's making, the honey he's making is magic, which is not metaphorical here. Like actual What a good sentence magic. that is. So... I don't know if there's a collection of more than 50,000 objects. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I just... Some of which was recently on view at the Met. Yeah. I think that was the the, um, motivation for this piece. This piece is a little bit more impressionistic than I would like for a a story that we generally cover on the show because Mm -hmm. it's a little hard to know what's going on. Anyway, I thought it was a really interesting place, but connected to that, there there are people out there with really interesting, specific collections. And if you know of one, even just a link about one, I'd sure like to know. This is yes. what I read on Friday nights when I you know have a glass of wine is about people's weird, interesting niche, <laughs> otherwise specific and bibliographically rigorous uh, book collections. Oh, it's how Jeff O'Neill turns up. <laughs> I don't even know what that means exactly, but it sounds like that's right. Oh, well, speaking of getting turned, um, mm. there is a company in Michigan that will sell you a book and gift you edibles. Oh! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're still figuring out how to do recreational marijuana in Michigan. Apparently, the state has, um, I think they have like a year. It became legal in Michigan in January, but legislators are still determining how selling it is supposed to work. Um, And if you know anything about prohibition laws and how complicated and weird and all the loopholes in prohibition laws are, um, it's pretty similar what's going on with the gradual rollout of legalized recreational use of marijuana. And one of the pretty common things is that it becomes legal to use and like legal to possess, but not legal to sell at the same time or legal to distribute Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so places will do like, you're going to buy a t-shirt from me and I'm going to give you your, your gummy bears. (laughs) This is one of the the weirdest loopholes in the law that ever has existed. It is. Um, in some States there are even, um, 
this is one of those like fascinating this I'm fascinated by these weird legal loopholes. And so I've been doing a lot of reading about it. But in some states, there is a leftover from prohibition, a loophole where um, you can have a marijuana delivery service, um, but you cannot sell the marijuana. So the thing you are selling is like the guy driving to the customer's house in the van, and then he gifts you whatever the products are that you have selected. And the cost of the drive is equivalent to the cost of the product. Um, but So there is a company in Blaze. It's in Michigan. It's called Blaze. Uh, Mm -hmm. that they sell books to their customers and you receive your uh your item as a gift (laughs) or your (laughs) items or whatever there's a brownie edible book bundle Uh, (laughs) um, packages range from 65 dollars to 400 dollars and it lives in this gray area where since you can't legally sell marijuana in Michigan, they're not sure if it's legal to gift it because how would the gifter acquire it? But also they're not prosecuting it. So I don't know if you're in Michigan and you want to have a fun Friday night. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if your Friday nights are more interesting than mine, generally speaking. I'm always um, interested in the places that books turn up that are not yeah. expected. And I, you know, like like baked goods is one that I would think you could you know get some interesting crossover mm-hmm. on i've seen like i have per- baked goods mm-hmm. there's a nice double entendre nice. nice. um thank you it's nice when those things are accidental i've seen the stuff like buy a t-shirt get a gummy or a pack of gummies or whatever um but interesting that a weed distributor is using books as their mechanism here in this case i just thought that was kind of fun and delightful i think you first or we first looked at the story in somewhere i think probably in our work slack and i was like it's like the dallas buyers club yeah yeah it's a kind of it's the same idea right is that there's Mm -hmm. a loophole that getting the the product itself isn't illegal you just can't sell it or buy it right so you have to go through the you have to piggyback it on something else which seems like such a weird half measure by the law like either out loud or don't you know, like it's the thing with cigarettes where you can smoke cigarettes at 17, but you can't buy them till you're 18. But it's also illegal to give someone under the age of 17. <laughs> yeah, it's cigarettes. like one, pe- one piece of the relationship is unregulated. Yeah. And that like opens up the whole thing. Like yeah. if you can find if you find cigarettes on the ground when you're 17, you can right. smoke them. <laughs> right. you know, it seems so weird. Um, I, I think these are probably great examples of cultural norms and opinions changing when you see a weird lacuna in the law like this mm-hmm. really this is between it being illegal and illegal yes um and you can see the direction it's going but for for the interim time we can have fun um imagining that yeah yeah saying with a straight face i'm buying books but just happening to get a, a joint <laughs> along with it so anyway let's do another sponsor and then do hero of the week yes the great course is plus we love digging into deep topics, maybe even with bibliographic rigor. Oh, and yes. that's what the Great Courses Plus is all about. These are in-depth digital video courses from top experts who are not only extremely knowledgeable, but also passionate about their subjects. And with the Great Courses Plus, you can keep these digital video series forever. Watch them anytime, anywhere. So one you might like, and we recommend, is mm-hmm. Classic Novels, colon, Meeting the Challenge of Great Literature, exclusively available through the Great Courses. Over the course of 36 lectures, Brown University professor Arnold Weinstein looks at the incredible classic works of Emily Bronte, Tolstoy, Proust, and so many others, moving beyond plot synopses and historic facts into exploring what makes these works brilliant. If you don't know anything about the Brontes, let me tell you, 
is that a fam family and a story and a literary and artistic legacy that's still sort of hard to imagine how it happened, how they got published, their relationship to each other. Really going to find out what makes the Bronte, Emily Bronte so great, but also connects to classic literature and the Western canon writ large. Really interesting stuff. The Great Courses Plus is giving our listeners an exclusive limited time offer. Order classic novels meeting the challenge of great literature and get 85% off the regular price. You get the whole thing. But this fantastic deal is only available for a limited time and only going to thegreatcourses.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcourses.com slash bookriot. You've probably heard other spots for The Great Courses Plus. That's not this. This is something separate. You buy the whole course at once. thegreatcourses.com slash bookriot for 85% off this particular series of 36 lectures. Get an education all in one go. All right, tell me about our hero of the week and let's get out of here. Our hero of the week is a five-year-old named, yes, mm -hmm, the kids are all right, Jeff. His name is Logan Brinson. He lives in Alpha, Illinois. And he was recently upset to discover that there is not a library near enough to him and he was not upset only for himself he was upset for his community so with the help of his parents he has opened a little free library in Mm. his front yard he loves to read and until he did this his village of alpha illinois did not have a library of its own so he went to alpha officials with his family he proposed setting up a small little a little free library in town so he's already got the town on his side he is not going to be subject to having his little free library <laughs> taken down like oh, those boy. evil people in leewood <laughs> kansas yeah. that wanted to take out Did that kid's library yeah, the that's meanies right. who took down the kid's library Um, He's got the town on his side. He opened this little free library in the summer of 2018. So it's been going now for several months. And now readers of all ages come to the Brinson house and they check out one book at a time from the little case out front. It's been so successful that Logan is going to open a second library next to the gazebo in the town center. I'm now convinced that Alpha Illinois is like Stars Hollow. Wow. It's set to open in May of this year. And in the meantime, the Brinson family are accepting book donations from around the world. So if you wish to send some books to be included in Alpha's little free libraries, there is an address in this piece from Mental Floss that will have a link in the show notes. And you can do that. You can send them some books and support the village of Alpha, Illinois slash Stars Hollow. Our hat is off to you this Mm. week, Logan Brinson. May your efforts succeed. May your efforts succeed wildly. Maybe yes. Logan's books will be the book chain of the future. Oh, I hope so. Don't you so. think so? There is something about a five-year-old, I have to say. They're it's at this, especially sweet. There's the, they're at the junction of they see the world around them and they care about other people, but they also have just enough magic in their eyes that they think mm-hmm. something like, I can replace the library might work. And sometimes it does. Yes. An old jaded, dried out husk like me don't think it's going to work, but they've got just, en- just enough of the, uh, of the pixie dust floating around them that they try it. And um, it can be infectious too, I know. So I can, I can understand how Benson's parents got on board the, the pixie train mm-hmm. here. And kudos to all of you. Really <laughs> on board it. the pixie train. Well, that comes with your book. <laughs> pixie train is a, is a gummy you get with the book you get in Bla- from Blaze. He says he doesn't know what turn of means. I'm sorry, what? 
Anyway. As always, you can find show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. You can shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. This is real insider, like in the, in the, the, the birdie has to be coming from within the house. If you know about audiobooks within the larger sort of strategic thinking of publishers, that seems like a big ask now that I'm saying it out loud, but you never know. Um, that's a big blind spot for us. Oh, or even more specifically, how much you got to pay a Rain Wilson or a Rosamund Pike or a Zuria Dawson to, to narrate your audiobook? I'd love to know that. I'd be fascinated. Rebecca? Yes. Talk to you later. Have a good one.